Welcome to the Outpost Bible Church podcast. My name is Pastor Alex Rodriguez. The Outpost Bible Church seeks to see men and women delivered by Christ, discipled in Christ, and deployed for Christ in His kingdom. Our values are to be Christ-centered, gospel-driven, scripturally grounded, prayerfully dependent, and mission-focused. Here, you will be able to find all of our Sunday morning and Sunday evening sermons. God bless. Father God, we come before you this morning in the powerful and precious name of your Son, our Lord, our Savior, our King, Jesus Christ. It is the only name by which we can approach you. And this morning, Lord, we ask that you would uh, grab hold of our hearts and that you would incline our hearts, Lord, to you. There are so many things that seek to distract us. There's so many, perhaps, things we have to do, difficult situations in our week. Maybe it's just we're distracted people. We ask, Lord, that you grab hold of our hearts and by your Holy Spirit, help us focus on you, Lord. And that you would open our eyes, that we would see just how wonderful and glorious and beautiful and excellent you are as we look into your word. That you would grab hold of our hearts as a church, as a family brought together by faith, and that you would unite our hearts, Lord, to fear and to love your name. That you would satisfy us with your steadfast love, that you would lead us into truth in a world full of lies, Lord. And that each of us would find today the beautiful comfort that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So as I said earlier, today we are starting a new chapter in the life of our local church. The last 14 months, we've been nomads. We've just kind of been all over the place. We started in the living room in Lakemore. Then we had people almost having to sit on the counters. And then God provided a small old church just down here in town in McHenry. We met there for a while and it was wonderful. It was getting a little tight there. We didn't know what we were going to do, and God, in his kindness, allowed another local church in Cary to use their facilities, and we started meeting there in the afternoons. We've been a church on the move, kind of like the Israelites. We've just been all around the wilderness, waiting for the Lord to provide us that that promised land, that place where we can settle down. Because we haven't had our own place in that regard. We haven't had a fixed community that we could reach with the gospel. Is it Lakemore? Is it McHenry? Is it Cary? Is it somewhere else we haven't thought of? But today, that changes. Today, our first service in our permanent home, God has given us a community that with assurance we can say we are called to reach with the gospel. We can put roots down. When you walked in, there was a banner up there, and that banner said, Christ is Lord of McHenry. Because Christ is Lord over all the earth. Though some may not acknowledge it, though some may say they don't know it, Jesus is King, and all men, women, and children have a responsibility to acknowledge the Lordship of Christ and to fold under it, to submit to it. So as we prayed, as the leadership discussed, how do we begin our time here? We could have continued in our series in Luke. And we thought about 
on the heels of the Reformation that just happened on Sunday on doing a series, uh, well, not a series, a message on the five solas. But more and more, my heart was burdened that if it's our first service here in our permanent home, then the church should be founded on the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, the gospel is central to Christianity. Without the gospel, there is no Christianity. If you get the gospel wrong, it doesn't matter what, you, what else you get right. It doesn't matter if you hold a biblical position on sexuality. It doesn't matter if you hold a biblical position on abortion, a biblical position on family, a biblical position on government. It doesn't matter if you love reading the Bible, studying theology, attending church, listening to worship music. None of that matters if you get the gospel wrong. And the reason I say that is because none of those things can actually save you. It's the gospel alone that can bring you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's the gospel alone that can make a sinner into a saint. It's the gospel alone that can give the hopeless hope. It's the gospel alone that justifies the guilty. It's the gospel alone that can give freedom. It's the gospel alone that gives sight to the spiritually blind. It's the gospel alone that can take a person who is spiritually dead and give them spiritually life. It's the gospel alone that can give you a new heart and make you a new creation. It's the gospel alone that could erase all your record of wrongdoing and your failures. Because it is the gospel alone that is the power of God to save. So this morning, I'm going to state a summary statement of what the gospel is, and then we're going to start peeling back the layers to unpack it. And I just want to say this, I, I don't want you to hear me preach the gospel this morning and think, well, if I can't preach it like that, I can't share the gospel. There's a variety of ways to share the gospel. There's the 30 seconds, Jesus died for your sins, believe in him. There's two minutes, this will not be a two minute. But we're going to unpack the gospel because I want to make sure that we are absolutely clear on this message because it's the most important message that humanity could ever hear. So if we were going to define the gospel at the outpost, the gospel is this. The gospel is the good news that God, by his grace and for his glory, saves sinners through the perfect life, substitutionary death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who take notes, I'll repeat it. The gospel is the good news that God, by his grace and for his glory, saves sinners through the perfect life, substitutionary death, and a resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That would be the definition. But that definition is pregnant with meaning. And so as we look at the gospel, as we think about it all, one of the most important things we have to know are some things about God. Because foundationally, this is the gospel of God. It is the gospel that has come from God. It is the gospel that brings us back to God. And so we must know certain things about him. From the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, to the last book of the Bible, what we are told is that God is the creator 
and the ruler of all things. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. He made it. And Revelation 4.11 tells us, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. Winter will be here soon. Every snowflake fashioned by the hand of God. The Grand Canyon, for those who have been there, fashioned by the hand of God. The rose that springs up in the desert and blooms for a short moment and nobody sees and withers in the heat, fashioned by God. All things are made for God. The Milky Way, the galaxies, the parts of space that we'll never ever discover and see, all created by God because he is the creator. And what that means for you, what that means for me, what that means for society is that the world did not come into existence because there was some mixture of dust in, in space gas that surrounded the sun and somehow it was this easy-bake oven that created humanity. That's not it. You and I are not cosmic accidents. Chaos doesn't produce order. You're not grown-up germs. Curious George is not a descendant of yours. You were created by God distinctly. He is the creator. We are creations. And because he made it all, it stands to reason that he rules over it all. It belongs to him. He is the creator. He is the ruler. And he is a good and loving ruler. Now, at some point, every single human being asks this question. Why am I here? Why do I exist? What is the purpose of life? For some, it's in their teens. For some, it's in their 30s, 40s. For some, it might be in that last fourth quarter of life, and they're reflecting back down the corridors of time. And what am I here for? Society would say, chart your own course. The world would tell you, you are the captain of your own soul. But the word of God tells us different. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. Why do you exist? Why did God make people? First and foremost, he made you to be in relationship with him. Being made in his image means you can truly relate to God. You can be in relationship with God. It's what you were created for. Nothing else bears the image of God the way we do. You were made by God and you were made for God. And you were also then called to fill the earth with other image bearers. The earth originally, humanity originally, was supposed to be this ever-growing people that are in perfect relationship, knowing, loving, and serving the God who made them. 
God also gave us a mission to steward, to have responsibility over all that he had made. But it's obvious. You and I know this. Just turn the news on for five minutes, two minutes. The world and people no longer live this way. As far back as we can go in human history, there's always been brokenness, wars, abuse, heartache, death. <coughs> Humanity has chosen to not live according to God's design. The question is why? And we actually saw it this morning in the kids' message. All that is wrong in the world goes back to one terrible, horrible choice that was made by our first parents, Adam and Eve. God told them in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, it's all yours except for this one tree. Don't eat from it. You can call it the tree of testing, the tree of obedience. Do you trust me enough to not eat from this tree? Genesis 3, we read during the previous message, the children, they ate from it. Instantly their eyes were opened, sin entered the world, why? Because humanity, Adam and Eve did not want God as their ruler. Adam and Eve did not want God ruling over them, telling them what they can and can't do. No, we want to be on equal footing as God. We want to have the same knowledge of good and evil as God. It's not enough to have a perfect God over us. We have to be his equal. And if we were to look at society, if we were to look at the world we live in, that is what it is. Men and women consistently trying to be gods themselves. How dare you tell me what I can and can't do? I'm the god of my own world. But when you have a whole world competing saying they're god, there's definitely going to be conflict. Listen to what Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. And all of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind carry us away. You're not immune. I'm not immune. No one's immune. All of us are unclean in God's sight. All of us have a deep, deep stain on our soul. The stain of sin. Funny, if you were to ask most people, do you think humanity is good or do you think humanity is bad? Do you... Ever increase? Well, I think people say, I think people are pretty good. We just make some bad choices. Again, by whose standard? The people that say, I think humanity is pretty good is because they're measuring themselves against other people. I can find somebody that I'm better than, always, and feel good about myself, deceived. Or you can always find somebody... Better than you. So we have to have an absolute standard, and that is the word of God. And what does God say about humanity? Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. This is the indictment. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. They, there is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. 
and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That could be a commentary on society today, and it is. There's nothing new under the sun, church. This is the reality. It's hard to hear, I know. Some of you may even be angry at me. How dare you say I'm a wicked and evil person? To quote Pastor Vody Bacham, I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. You take issue with what I said, you have to take issue with God. You may fancy yourself a good person, but you're not. The Bible is clear. We are all dead in sin. We are all sinners. We're all morally corrupt. All of us have a heart that is inclined toward evil. We're all coming to this world spiritually dead. You don't have a natural love for God. Nobody comes into this world loving God. At best, they want to use him. And if you were honest with yourself and you looked in the mirror, you would know that to be true. You may do good things, but even your best acts are corrupt because they're self-seeking. Now, here's a great thought experiment for those perhaps who are like, oh, I don't know, I think I'm all right. Invite a cl- 100 of your closest friends and family. Invite them to a theater, nice IMAX. Let's get it in 4K, whatever else is, whatever's the best one out there. And let's project on this movie screen everything that you think, say, do, and desire for the last week. And then afterwards, let's have a meet and greet. You're going to go hide because you know what's in your heart. I'm going to go hide. That's just for the last seven days. I'd be done after the first 24 hours, to be honest, because inherently humanity is not good. We're sinful. Now, This is a huge problem. I I hope you see the problem building. It's a huge problem because of who God is. God is not simply this impersonal force. He didn't simply create everything, set it into motion, and say, figure it out. Our God, the one true God, is intimately involved in all that he has made. And this God that we worship, this God that is the true God, whether somebody acknowledges him or not, he is a holy God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. Listen to what the angels sing in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's the soundtrack in heaven. Holy, holy, holy. Habakkuk chapter 1 Verse 13, speaking of the Lord, your eyes are too pure to see evil. So unique is God that he doesn't even have a desire to look upon evil. It's not that he doesn't say it, it's speaking about his character. He so despises that he would rather not even look upon it. Or Psalm 5, verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evilness does not sojourn with you. What does that mean? What is it we saying here? What it means is that the one true God is pure. That the one true God is perfect. That the one true God is free from any sin, any corruption. That he is unlike us in every way. 
Do you realize holiness, that kind of holiness, is something that we actually can't fully understand? Because of our sin, we can't even understand perfect purity. But not only is God holy, he is also righteous. Listen to Psalm 11, verse 7. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Or Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness, without injustice, righteous and upright, is he. Do you realize why that is good news? God will always act in a way that is right and fitting with who he is and his perfections. If God was amoral, or if God was immoral, sin actually wouldn't be a problem to God. But he's holy. He's righteous. So sin is an issue. And so now the question is coming together. There's a God who made us. He made us to be in relationship with him. He said that we should be in obedience to him. We said, no, not going to have it. I'm going to rebel against you. I'm going to do me. God's like, well, that's a problem because I'm holy and I'm righteous. So how does God deal with our sinful rebellion. This is the dilemma. Do you realize that your biggest problem and my biggest problem is that God is good? Think about that. Your biggest problem, my biggest problem, the world's biggest problem is that God is good. Why is it a problem? Because we're not. God can't simply sweep sin under the rug. If God were to sweep sin under the rug, he wouldn't be God. He would violate his very character and nature. Listen to what the Lord says in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to Yahweh. So if people who turn their eye to what is wrong are an abomination to God, why would we think God can simply say, you know what? It's going to sweep it under the rug. We're good. I'm just going to forgive you. There has to be, there's no consequence. I can just forgive. That's what society says. Why can't God just forgive? Because if he did, he wouldn't be holy. If he did, he wouldn't be righteous. God cannot allow sinful rebellion to just keep going on and on and on forever. That's why he told Adam, if you do this thing, there's a consequence, death. One of the things that burdens my heart the older I get is how little people actually think about the fact that they have a soul, a soul that will last forever. And that that soul has to be stewarded, lived for. Are you living for your soul or are you living for your desires? Especially as I see the youth in our country. It's not even an after. There's just no thought process about your soul. But 
Hebrews 9.27 tells us it is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. Each and every one of us will appear before God and give an account for the way we live, for how we have taken care of our soul. And God will give you exactly what you asked for. If you chose in this life to live apart from the Lord, if you chose in this life to live for yourself and in rebellion to God, then he's going to give you exactly that. He's going to give you total separation from his grace, his mercy, his love, and his goodness for all eternity. He will give you the desires of your heart. And he will give them to you in hell. It will be a place of weeping, of gnashing of teeth. We tend to think about the fire and all that stuff. And is it literal fire? Is it not? Is it just symbolic? I don't know, but the fire isn't what scares me. What scares me is that it is a place that there is not a drop of love. It is a place of pure, unfiltered judgment, righteousness. It is God's perfect wrath. Now, some people say, well, that's really cruel of God. That doesn't seem like a God of love. Why would a God of love do that to people? Well, let me ask you this. If God didn't judge sin and wickedness, could you say God is good? Do you want a not good God running things? not cruel. It makes perfect sense. We do that in our own legal systems. We don't want corrupt judges. We want those who will uphold the goodness of the law. And so no, it is not cruel for God. The reason we find it cruel is just because like Adam and Eve, we want to be able to hide from our sin. We don't want to be held accountable to it. You realize God would be good if he stopped right there. If that was the end of the story, God would be good. But it is not the end of the story. Because God is not simply holy. God is not simply just. God is also gracious, merciful, and loving. And in God's abundant, extravagant love, he responds to the plight of man. He sends his son into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take upon flesh, being truly God and truly man, to solve our greatest problem that we couldn't fix. And God does it out of love. God didn't do it out of duty. God sent Christ out of love. John 3.16, the verse we all know, for God so loved the world, or Better rendering, for God loved the world in this way that he sent his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall perish but have eternal life. It was love that sent, the love of God that sent Christ. Listen to what it says in 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 and 10. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. 
By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only son, his begotten son, into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I want to be very clear here. When we talk about the love of God, we're not talking about emotions. We're not talking about an attitude. We're not talking about an action necessarily. Love is actually an attribute of God. It is who he is. So any act of love that God has performed, and in this sense in sending Jesus, it flows from his very character. And it's worth pausing and thinking about this. Let's take, let's take the world's, world's view. There is no God. How does the world, devoid of the one true God, account for love? Where does love come from? If you're simply a cosmic accident and all that you are is molecules in motion, you can't create love in a test tube. And it's not necessarily true love. It's just whatever your brain is firing in. It's chemistry. You're a fizzing Coke bottle. Do you realize that love can only be explained in the one true God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? To the Muslim brothers and sisters, and my brothers and sisters, I don't mean that they're in the family of faith. To those who are Muslims, Allah can't be love because Allah doesn't exist as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has no object of love. He, love is not inherent into his character. It's not an attribute. Only the one true God can be a God of love. And it is in his love that he sends his son. When he sends Jesus, it's the story we all know. You know, the problem with familiar stories, familiar truths, is we end up not prizing them the way we should. I think marriage is a great example. You used to, I got married on this day, and we notice some wives would probably say, husbands, right? Don't make as big a deal of the anniversary. We get used to things. We stop prizing the beauty, the importance, the power of it. And this is, I think, what happens when we go to this next part and we look at the fact that Jesus came, lived, and died. We've grown so accustomed to hearing it, we cease to be amazed by it. Listen to what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Speaking of our Lord. Who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. It's an amazing thing to think, to, to realize that so great is our sin before God that the Lord Jesus had to take upon flesh and die one of the most excruciating deaths known to humanity at that time. The word excruciating itself means out of the cross. He was spit on, he was beat, he was ridiculed, 
He carried that wood upon his back. He was nailed to the cross. He was hung there naked in his shame. It was, a, it was suffering that none of us could truly imagine. But that's not the worst part of it. And I want us to be clear here. There have been martyrs in the Christian church who have died more painful deaths than Jesus died. Peter was crucified upside down. Some were put into hot oil and burned. There were worse deaths that martyrs of the faith have endured. What makes the death of Christ so unimaginable is that he's perfect, never sinned. He has never had anything but a perfect relationship with his Father in heaven. Perfect love. But as he hangs on the cross, the perfect one, the spotless Lamb of God, endures the full righteous wrath of God the Father. Jesus endures the judgment of the holy and righteous one. Jesus satisfies the righteous requirement of God's justice. Jesus suffered the wrath of God for you and for me. Think about this. You would spend all eternity paying this price, and somehow Jesus drinks that cup of wrath for all who believe in him in three hours. And in that darkest moment in his humanity, he cries out, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one that he's only had a perfect relationship of love, at that moment, because he bears our sin, the Father says, I can't even look at you. Could you imagine saying that to one of your children? And Jesus did it willingly. Jesus wasn't forced to do this. He did it for the joy that was set before him. He did it to redeem a people for himself. The Father sent. The Son accepts. The Son does it joyfully because those who would believe in him, can you believe this part? We are his inheritance. We are the prize given to Jesus for his act of redemption. But in that moment, the sky goes dark and heaven is silent. The innocent one is treated as a criminal so that all who trust in him can be brought back into a relationship with their creator. Your sin is placed on Jesus so that when the Father looks at him, your sin is viewed as being his sin. Listen to how the Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I forgot who said it, but it says the Son of Man, the Son of God became a Son of Man so that the sons of men could become sons of God. He switched places. It would be like somebody utterly destitute switching bank accounts with Jeff Bezos. They didn't earn it, but those are switched, and so the, the richness of one is given to the poorness, of the poverty of the other, and the poverty of the one is given to the, to the richness of this one. This is why it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been given to us. 
Because by faith in Christ, his perfect righteousness is credited to our account because our sin was imputed to him. And then he dies. He really dies. Jesus really experienced death, that thing that all of us will experience one day, that thing that keeps some of us up at night, the thing that our society tries to avoid at every turn. We fear aging, not because we fear becoming less attractive, but because we fear death. Jesus went through that thing. He really died. He's lowered from the cross. He's put in a, he's wrapped. He's put in a tomb. And it's sealed. But do you realize this? In Protestant churches, our crosses don't have Jesus on them. Why? Because he's no longer there. He rose from the dead. Jesus truly rose bodily three days later. If Jesus had simply died for your sin, it would not have been enough. If Jesus hadn't resurrected from the dead, your faith in him is absolutely useless. If he hadn't risen from the dead, the gospel has no value. It's not good news. It is because Jesus rose from the dead that we have the gospel. Because the resurrection shows a few things. The resurrection shows us that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God. Listen to what it says in Romans 1.4. Who was designated as the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He is exactly who he said he was. He told the Pharisees, tear down this temple in three days I'll raise it up. Speaking of his body. The resurrection shows that Jesus paid the price in full for our sins. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. He who was delivered over on our account of our transgressions and was raised on account of our justification. We can be justified because he really paid the debt of sin. You don't have to work to be forgiven. If you're trying in this, in, I just want to say, if you're trying somehow to earn God's favor in your life, if you're trying some way just to make sure you keep the, the balance of righteousness in the positive, stop. Jesus paid the price completely. You are fully justified. God the Father looks down on you and sees you as perfectly righteous because when he sees you, he sees the righteousness of his son. So stop trying to earn it. You can't. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it proves that his death was sufficient to pay the debt of sin. It also shows that he defeated the power of sin and death. You could put it this way, Jesus put death to death. And it's because Jesus rose from the dead that his perfect life and righteousness can be credited to us. And the resurrection also shows that you, if you put your faith in him, will be resurrected. Your body's going to give out. My body is going to give out. But your soul lives forever, and there will be a day where you will be resurrected if you are a follower of Jesus, and you will receive a glorified body free from the corruption of sin, 
free from decay. And that's a reality because Jesus rose from the dead and he's the first fruits. John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who believes and believes in me will never die, ever. Do you believe this? That question is what we have. Do we believe that? It's an amazing thing to not have to fear death. I'm not saying we're excited about the prospect of it. That process is scary, sure. It's very, it's unknown. But you need not fear death because it's not the end. There's a song by a Christian artist who said, death is just a doorway that takes me to the lover of my soul. It's a beautiful picture. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. I often think of my grandfather. He died when I was 10 years old. He was a minister. I don't know about the nature of his faith. I don't remember much. I just remember him talking Spanish all the time and taking me to the Moody Bible bookstore back in the day. But because of the resurrection, I can say, if he's truly a follower of Jesus, I'm going to see him one day. I'll see my grandpa again. It's astounding. My other grandfather was also a professing believer. And if he's in Christ, I'm going to see him again one day. I'm willing to bet both of them are going to say, how'd you get here? Based on what they knew of you. It'll be a story. But we will be resurrected. And because Jesus is resurrected, it also means that he is ruling and he is reigning right now as king. The world is not spinning out of control the way we think. The world is going exactly the way God in his sovereign power is ordaining it to be. So you don't need to stay up at night wringing your hands, panicking. No, God is in control. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in the heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have a risen king who is in heaven, ruling and reigning perfectly, working all things for the good of those who believe in him and are called according to his purpose. We need to live with that reality. Even the corruption in the world is still accomplishing God's ultimate purposes. And it's because he resurrected. He's risen. So what do we do? How do you respond to this? How do you respond to the reality that there is a God who is a creator and ruler, and he made you to be in relationship with him, and made you to extend his kingdom and fill the earth with people that will enjoy him, but we've rebelled against him? 
And sin has now entered the world, and God has to maintain his holiness and his justice. He has to condemn sin. But in his love, he sends his son to take our place, to live a perfect life, to die a substitutionary death, to rise from the dead three days later so that he's ruling and reigning, and he offers eternal life. What do we do with this? You have to, everybody responds to that one way or the other. There's only real two ways to live. Way number one is what so many people choose. I'm still going to reject him as my God and creator. I'm still going to live for my own desires. I'm still going to remain in my brokenness and in my rebellious, sinful ways. I'm still going to just face death and judgment head on because I think I'm strong enough to take it. My works are good enough. Or I'm just going to deny reality and say none of this is true. That's an option. That's an option some of you maybe in this room are choosing. But the other option is to choose the path that God has laid out, the, God, the path that God has made available, the narrow path. It is to acknowledge and submit to Jesus as ruler, as Lord, as Savior. It's to rely on his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection, as the only means by which to be forgiven and declared righteous, to receive the new life that God offers, to receive the perfect love that he gives, to no longer face eternal judgment. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality here. You're, there's only two paths, and you're on one of them. And you can always turn from the one path onto the other. Now, if you're on the path called self, you don't got to do anything. Just keep marching. That's what you want? Keep marching. Just keep living for you. It's not going to end up where you think. But if you choose to live... On the path, and choose the path that God gave you and live for that, then the first step you have to do is you have to repent. You have to truly recognize, confess that what Jesus has said about you is true, that you are a sinner. And you have to turn away from all the sin that you hold dear. You have to turn away from sin and turn to Christ. Beautiful picture that is found in Psalm 51. King David, in the midst of grotesque sin in his life, says in verses 3 and 4, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You have to be devastated. You have to hate and turn from it. There has to be a genuine recognition but there also has to be a sorrow, a shame, a hatred of your sin. You know, we live in a time where people in the church will acknowledge their sin. They'll confess their sin. They'll affirm that it's wrong. But they don't hate it. They don't turn, they won't give it up. We are to have no relate, we must hate our sin. I'm not saying that we'll be perfect, but when we slide into sin, when we make those choices, we should be filled with remorse, hatred, and disgust. How could I do that to the God who loves me so? Do you hate your sin? If you are a follower of Christ here this morning, just do you hate your sin? Are you willing to put your sin to death, or are you just trying to 
hush it up a little bit and keep it in the corner and hope nobody notices. We must hate, genuinely hate our sin. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7, listen to this verse, verse 15. From what I, for what I am working out, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. Verse 24. A wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So we must acknowledge our sin. We must mourn our sin. We must hate our sin, but it's still not enough. There has to be a decisive break, decision, turning away. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report about us what kind of an entrance we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. What is your relationship with sin? Are you putting it to death? Are you hating it? Are you breaking from it? Jesus says you can't serve God and money. You can't serve sin and God. You can't. And I think especially with so many children here this morning, we need to teach our children to hate sin. That We need to make sure they understand the grievousness of it all. Growing up in the church from a young age, you can become dull to just how deadly sin is. Those of us, I think, who were perhaps saved more radically in our adult years, we have scar tissue that reminds us. But for those who have grown up in the church, Make sure your heart is indulged to the gravity and deadliness of sin. Break from it. Repent. Turn. Believe. Trust in what Jesus has done. It is truly the only way. Because when you give your life to Christ, it'll change. I think everybody in here who's a follower of Jesus can say, I'm not who I should be. I'm definitely not who I was. And God tells us in his word that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God will not stop sanctifying you. God is more committed to shaping you into the image of his son than you are. He will not fail you. But you must trust in Christ. He has told us that he doesn't say you will be a new creation. He says that you are. It's a reality. It's not a promise of what's to come. It's the reality of who you are here and now. Listen to it. Be encouraged by it. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. You are not marked by your past failures. You are not part marked by your past sins. You don't need to keep looking back thinking, am I still that person? Am I still that? No. That person was put to dead. You have been made new. You were, it wasn't a remodel. It was a teardown. 
You are a completely new creation in Christ Jesus. Do not allow the devil to whisper in your ear and say you are still defined about who you were apart from Christ. You are a new creation in him. That is the promise for all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus' perfect life, substitutionary death and resurrection, and he wants you to be assured of that. He gives assurance. There will be moments of doubt in the Christian life, but we don't base our assurance of our salvation on our performance. We base the assurance of our salvation on what Jesus Christ has done. You are not saved by the size of your faith. You're saved by the object of your faith. The Apostle John knows that we have a tendency to doubt. So he says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Do a self-examination, though. The Apostle Paul tells us to examine our hearts. So do that self-examination. Don't deceive yourself thinking simply because I know about God that I know God. More importantly, are you known by God? Have you trusted in Jesus? Is he precious to you? Do you treasure him? I don't care for you to believe facts alone. Simply believing the right facts will still damn you. But loving Jesus seeing him as precious, clinging to him, having him be that pearl of great price, that treasure in the field, the one from whom you will forsake all and cleave to him. That is what we want. Faith, the acronym I learned a long time ago, faith can simply be said, forsaking all, I trust him. Is he everything to you? If you were offered all the riches in the world, all the power and prestige in the world, perfect health, long life, maintaining an appearance of youth, but you don't have Christ, would you take the deal? And far too many would say yes. But if you are given Jesus and the rest of your life is one of difficulty, of sickness, of heartache, but you have Christ, you have life eternal in his name. Would you take that deal? It's a far better deal. It's something we don't deserve. Church, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is glorious because it is the message that alone can save. It's the message that alone can give life. It is the news that must ring forth from this church. It is the message that we must cling to. It's the message we must rejoice in. It's the message we should have as the as that drives all we do. We should be gospel-driven people. We're centered on Christ because he's our life, but the power of the gospel is what continues to strengthen and move us forward. And the gospel is not simply good news because you're forgiven, though that's wonderful. The gospel is not simply good news because you'll live eternally in a glorified body, though that is wonderful. What makes the gospel so glorious and so good is that you get to be brought back into relationship with the God who made you and the God who loves you. You get God. There is a coming day for all who have repented and trusted in Jesus where you will actually see the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Imagine what it's going to be like when you look into those eyes and he looks into yours and he welcomes you into his kingdom. And in those eyes, you will understand the love of God in a way that language cannot grasp. That's what makes the gospel so beautiful, so powerful, such good news. We will sing of the gospel for all eternity. And in this life, we should aim to be ever growing deeper in the study and in the love of the gospel and in what God has done for us through his son. So if there's anybody here this morning who is truly not a follower of Jesus, I beg you to turn away from your sin. I beg you to turn by faith to Christ. I beg you to repent and believe the message of the gospel. Today is the salvation. Do not harden your heart. Do not delay this decision thinking, I'll do that later on. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. You and your heart of hearts know the gospel to be true. Quit suppressing the truth in your unrighteousness. Quit trying to wash out the stain of sin by your good works. You're just making a bigger mess. Come to the blood of Christ that will make you whiter than snow. Turn from your sin here and now. Turn to Christ. Be forgiven and receive God's perfect, glorious love. And begin the life of longing for the day when you will be reunited face to face with your Redeemer. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now in the name of your Son who is our hope and our righteousness. We come before you now, Lord, thanking you that you are not simply a holy God and a righteous God, but that you are a God full of grace, mercy, and love. We recognize that you owed us nothing but judgment, but that you desired to showcase who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you have sent your Son to take upon flesh, to live a perfect life, and to resurrect for the penalty of sin. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are ruling and reigning now, that our lives are not out of, con out of your control. We thank you that it was for jo the joy set before you and your abundant love that you came down, Lord Jesus. And we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us not be so dull-hearted in the faith. We repent that so often the gospel is a checkbox. Yeah, we did that. You, Lord Jesus, are maybe a moment of our day, but you're not our life. Help us be Christ-centered, gospel-driven men and women. Help this church be a truly an outpost for the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that you would draw people to yourself here and now, Lord. If anybody who is hearing my voice is not a follower of Jesus, Lord, we pray here and now, Break through the stony heart. Break through the pride. Break through the stubbornness. Show them truly that they are lost and destitute without you. Grieve them for their sin. Create in them a desire for the forgiveness and the relationship that you offer. And give them the gift of faith that they would repent and believe in you. And may we celebrate with them. Jesus, I thank you that we have been given the privilege to be used by you to proclaim this glorious message. It is truly good news. May we not be excited and more passionate to share worldly good news than we are about this. Give us a burden, a passion, a hunger to see men and women enter into the joy that you offer through life in Christ. We pray all these things in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.